from Washington, D.C. and around the world. This is Government Matters Defense with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm Mimi Gerges. Deputy Defense Secretary Kathleen Hicks has issued new guidance under the Defense Department's drone policy. The Pentagon can now more easily buy drones built by industry. That guidance will allow DOD to quickly take advantage of technological advancements. The guidance continues the existing policy of not allowing the department to purchase Chinese-made drones. A new report finds that the Defense Department's reliance on for-profit military contractors during the Afghan war led to waste and fraud. More than half of the $14 trillion spent on the 20-year war went to contractors. Some of those awards resulted in price gouging and profiteering. Brown University's Costs of War Project and the Center for International Policy released the report. The group say that privatizing central functions reduces the military's control in war zones and increases the risk of fraud. Program analysts at Space Force says they will soon complete a new cybersecurity certification process for commercial communication satellites. The service said it wants to allow for increased trust in industry to assess their own system's needs. Officials say they will still do their due diligence in reviewing whether the solutions are reliable and meet federal cybersecurity standards. China has pledged $31 million of aid to Afghanistan and their embassy in Kabul has remained open. What does growing Chinese influence for the, with the Taliban mean for U.S. security? Yun Sun is director of the China program at the Stimson Center. Yun, welcome. Thank you for having me, Mimi. So the U.S. has left Afghanistan at the end of August. Is China now filling a power vacuum? Well, first off, there is a power vacuum. After the U.S. withdrawal, there's a question as to which external power is going to play a bigger role in the country and what that means for the internal stability and also um, internal stability of Afghanistan as well as the regional stability. So I think a lot of regional countries are indeed concerned and are willing to uh, observe and play an appropriate role. China is certainly one of those countries and because of China's economic capacity and um, also the Taliban's willingness to reach out to China for China to play a bigger role in the country. I think the general assumption is that there's a supply and there's a demand. And then the next question is how much will China be willing to launch into Afghanistan to play that bigger role? Well, before I, we go into that, I want to ask you, what does China want from Afghanistan? What, what's the benefit of them supporting the Taliban? Uh, I would say there are primarily two things. On the top of the list is, uh, is security. Because uh, China borders Afghanistan, although the border is very short, the inflow um, of the weaker, of the Islamic radical groups with the militant groups into China, especially into China's Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, uh, has always been a problem. And China identifies Afghanistan as one of the, one of the hottest spots that have been producing the security threat. So for China, the most important agenda in Afghanistan is to make sure that the counterterrorism effort in the Chinese definition and also the effort to eradicate the Uyghur militant groups in Afghanistan remains a top priority for any Afghan government, whether it is led by a civilian uh, president 
or it is led by Taliban. And then secondly, uh, secondarily, there is also the geo-economic consideration. We all know that Afghan boasts rich mineral resources, and China in the past had invested in some of them. But looking into the future, if Afghanistan is able to achieve internal stability, I think the Chinese will not leave Afghanistan uh, outside the scope of China's out, uh, overseas investment. And we also know, uh, in terms of the geoeconomics, Afghanistan occupies a pretty central place in China's Belt and Road Initiative going towards the West from China's Western border. So the, Afghanistan is almost one of the first countries um, that China will encounter in this Belt and Road Initiative. So how to turn Afghanistan into a crystal, critical link in China's BRI is also a, uh, a consideration in China's playbook. So Yun, you, you mentioned the two things, which is security and the mineral deposits. There's an extremist group in Afghanistan called the East Turkestan Independence Movement, ETIM, and China's concerned about that. Who are they? What does China want the Taliban to do? Well, ETIM traditionally has been regarded as a, uh, a Uyghur militant group, um, operating, receiving trainings in Afghanistan. And the, according to the Chinese narrative, this ETIM has been, uh, has been responsible for terrorist attacks that have happened in China. So for China, when they talk about the Uyghur issue or talk about the uh, security situation in Xinjiang, ETIM is always on the top of the list as a culprit for the instability in the uh, in the region, especially the terrorist attacks. Um, I think this perception of ETIM was shared by the international community earlier. So probably uh, from 2001 um, to, 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 to a much more recent time. But I would note that in November last year, the State Department actually removed the ETIM from the terrorist exclusion list. Um, what that means is that, as in, in the explanation, State Department stated that um, we're not sure that ETIM still exists as an organization. So maybe there are still Uyghur militants and Uyghur groups, but ETIM as an organization is, uh, is no longer as active or in, in existence as we observe. Well, so Yun, I, there is, I want to ask you ahead. about Bagram because there is rumors that the Chinese are going to take over Bagram Air Force Base, Air Base. Do you think that will happen? Is there something that the U.S. military should do about that? Um, the answer is much more complicated than the yes or no. Because uh, according to Chinese military playbook, basically the Chinese will not send troops to foreign soil. And that has been an operating principle uh, for the Chinese PLA. But on the other hand, Chinese troops have been present overseas under the UN mandate. So whenever there is a UN peacekeeping mission and China participates in those missions, China sends troops to, to, to other countries, which means that for China to unilaterally send their troops to take over Bagram, I think that's very unlikely to happen because it will not only violate China's operating principle, but also draw so much attention to China's attempt to fill in the void that the U.S. has left. You China, there, sorry to cut yeah. you off. Is there something that the Pentagon should do to counter, to contain Chinese influence in Afghanistan? Well, there are certain things that we can do, but it all requires very difficult decisions. 
So for example, if we want to counter Chinese influence in Afghanistan, well, China's primary conduit currently is through Pakistan and through the Afghan Taliban. If we want to compete with China, what does that mean for our for our approach is that we probably will have to establish some sort of relationship with Taliban in order to mitigate or to offset the Chinese dominant influence. But are we willing to do that after 20 years in Afghanistan? We just withdrew. So I think the dilemma lies into less in the domestic political decision making here in the United States as for whether China constitute a big enough threat for us to reconsider our approach to Afghan Taliban. All right. Well, Yun, we're out of time. Thank you so much for joining us. Coming next, change could be coming for the military's most expensive weapons program. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the future of the Air Force's F-35 aircraft. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The F-35 is the Air Force's top-of-the-line fighter jet. But how many do they need? How many can they afford? Valerie Encina is an air warfare reporter at Defense News. Valerie, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. The title of your article is, How many F-35s does the Air Force need? What's the answer to that question? Well, I mean, that's sort of the question that's on everyone's minds. Um, and the, the question kind of underlying that is, you know, what you said before, how much can the Air Force actually afford? If, if, if they had all the money in the world, the Air Force would love to buy all 1,700 or so F-35s in the program of record. But they've got a lot of other things to pay for over the next couple of years. They've got, you know, uh, ICBM re replacement. They've got a new stealth bomber. Um, they've got a bunch of other weapons priorities. And the budgets are forecasted to stay pretty stagnant. So then it sort of becomes a question of, okay, so how many do we actually need? How many can we afford? And where can we make some trade-offs? So there's a lot of internal discussions going on inside the Air Force. What's, what's going on? What's, what are they talking about? So there are a couple studies happening inside of the Air Force, and there's also one happening kind of wider um, in the de Department of Defense, looking at sixth generation fighters, so you know what comes after the F-35, and then also what is the appropriate mix of fighters? How do we make sure that we have the number of F-35s and balance that with you know, the F-15EX, maybe another fourth generation fighter? Um, and how do we make sure that we have the right number to beat a near peer competitor like China or Russia? What's happening inside Congress? What are, are the winds changing inside Congress with respect to the F-35? Absolutely. I think that's kind of one of the more interesting pieces of this. In the past, Congress has been such an advocate for the F-35. They have consistently put more F-35s into the budget uh, above and beyond what the Defense Department has requested. And this year, the Air Force basically said, please don't do that. We, we, we have enough for what we need right now. We actually need to um, wait to buy more F-35s until there is a more advanced version of it. And Congress, you know, is listening. And uh, interestingly enough, uh, the House uh, Armed Services Committee actually put into their version of the Defense Policy Bill a couple of provisions that would tie uh, the, the uh, number of aircraft that the Air Force could buy or the, the military could buy with how affordable the F-35 is, so that's sort of an incentive to 
ensure that that aircraft, the sustainment costs and the, the operations costs go down. Is that, I mean, what impact is that language from the HASC going to have? Is it, is it going to change anything? Well, I guess step one is we have to see whether the Senate Armed Services Committee accepts that and whether that ends up in the final bill and then that's approved. So there's still a couple steps to go before this becomes law. And then after that, I think a lot of it will be up until interpretation. It, it would, this would not come into effect until I think in the late 2020s. Um, so the services and Lockheed Martin, who makes the F-35, they've got some time to try to get costs down. Um, and the other kind of wrinkle in this is there is a little provision in that language that would allow the Secretary of Defense to certify, hey, you know, we really need these aircraft anyway, even though we're not meeting our affordability targets. So then that raises, raises another question of, okay, so, you know, does the DOD have this other lever that they can pull that if they need these aircraft, they can, they can buy them even if they're not meeting these, these affordability targets? I wonder how the Air Force um, evaluates the F-35 in terms of the cost, the effectiveness. Um, and, and how do they know how much they need to deter China, to counter, I mean, if we ever had to fight China? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Uh, a lot of the answers probably to that question are classified because so many of the F-35's more exquisite technologies and capabilities are classified. But that's something that as the Air Force does this study, they're going to be weighing all of those points, weighing potential future upgrades, weighing what they're seeing from Chinese, uh, from intelligence uh, about what China could do in the future. And then also kind of looking out into the world and under, trying to understand, okay, so how would we operate them? How would we deploy them? And that's all going to figure into the study coming up. So, I mean, it's a great question. There are so many different aspects to it. Uh, it it's just one of those thing that, things that's hard to put a pin in. That's, that's why we're having this conversation, asking these questions. So what's your sense, Valerie? What do you, how do you think all this is gonna play out? So, I mean, I, I think that uh, 1,700 fighters, is a, that's, that's quite a lot. Um, and I think that it will be a real struggle for the Air Force to afford all of them. The fact that they're talking about this, that Congress seems a little bit more amenable to potentially lowering the buy, I, I think that it's, it's not necessarily great news for Lockheed Martin. Um, I think it's a sure sign that maybe some drastic moves need to be made to be you know, to make the operation and sustainment of this aircraft more more affordable, less expensive, or else I, I think it is very possible that we could see, you know, a hit to the number of aircraft that the military plans to buy. All right. Well, Valerie, thanks so much. Thank you for your reporting on this. You can find a link to Valerie's article at govmatters.tv/resources. Up next, eighty-three billion dollars and twenty years in Afghanistan. Straight ahead on Government Matters why the U.S. military wasn't able to build an effective Afghan fighting force. We archive every episode of Government Matters on govmatters.tv. I'll be right back. The Pentagon spends billions of dollars every year to assist foreign militaries around the world. The rapid collapse of the Afghan security forces is typical for local forces built with U.S. military assistance. 
That's according to Rachel Teacott. She's an assistant professor at the U.S. Naval War College. She's writing about building allied armies in Foreign Affairs magazine. Rachel, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Why does the Defense Department engage in what's called security force assistance or train and equip operations? Well, it's an attractive tool for the U.S. Defense Department because if there's a threat far away that the U.S. doesn't want to send its own troops or it doesn't want to send its own troops to manage, it sounds like an economical tool to build the capacity of local partners to bear that burden for it so the United States doesn't have to bear the burden. So build the capacity of local partners, work by, with, and through those local partners, and that's a good way to manage a threat that's far from the United States without, uh, without sinking a lot of American resources into the project. That, that's the idea behind this. It's a good idea, but why wasn't the military successful then in building a capable army in Afghanistan to fight the Taliban? Yeah, I mean, the, the tricky part of this problem is that military effectiveness or the capacity of the partner to manage a local threat doesn't just depend on how much cash that local partner has, how much cash the United States gives it, the equipment the U.S. gives it. Uh, what, what matters is the, the decisions that the local partners make. So how to employ those resources, whether to promote internally based on merit, whether to root out corruption. These are the, the patterns of decisions that make or break the capacity of a partner. So it doesn't matter how much cash or equipment the U.S. puts into a partner military if the, if the leaders at the top continue to make decisions that undermine the military. And so while the U.S. military is very good at providing training and equipment, it's not so good at convincing the local partner to make the decisions necessary to make those resources translate into military effectiveness. That's the key challenge for security force assistance. Well, speaking of those foreign leaders, you say this in your article, quote, Afghan officers proved less interested in fighting for the corrupt government in Kabul than in securing their own personal enrichment, siphoning American dollars to their patronage networks. Did Pentagon leaders know that that was happening? Yes, they did. This was this is um, this was not a surprise to anyone who was paying attention to this problem. So the U.S. had military advisors embedded within Afghan units down to the battalion level for the duration of the advisory project in Afghanistan, and there were consistent lamentations: American dollars are being siphoned off. This is we are fueling corruption. Uh, it was it was not a surprise to anyone paying attention to this project or anyone involved in it. the The key problem was well, how do we get them to stop? doing this and that's where that's where the issue was it wasn't blindness to the problem it was a, a steps to fix it so then rachel why didn't they just say okay the money's going to stop until you cut out um the corruption and stealing our money that is such a great question. It's, a, it's the question that got me interested in this project. Why not make all of the assistance conditional on the partner actually employing it to accomplish the mission the money is for? And that's a tricky question. And from the U.S. military's perspective, and it is the U.S. military, Washington delegates security force assistance projects almost entirely to the U.S. military. Uh, conditionality has come to, to take kind of an ideological um, counter-normative tenor in the U.S. military. It's considered bullying, coercion. That's not what we do with our partners. We don't force them to follow our advice. We are here as advisors, here to help. It's not up to us to make their decisions for them. And that's sort of a, a mantra in U.S. military advising, that we're here to help, not to, not to bully, so, which is interesting to me because conditionality is a very normal part of alliance and partnership dynamics in almost every other context but exclusively in this context of military 
military advising, the military's come to view that as a taboo. Conditionality is a taboo. Um, and I think that's largely because the military is a bureaucracy. And like many bureaucracies, it once it sets up really tricky mechanics and advising is is nothing if not very tricky mechanics. Uh, get your people into theater, provide training, get equipment there. Once they set all of that up, they wanna keep it running. It's disruptive to stop it. So to threaten to stop it, to threaten to say, you know, if they don't use it well, we're gonna cut these trains off. Well, that's, that's threatening to disrupt their own heavy machinery. And that's never something that the US military is inclined to do unless pushed to do it from the outside. And do you think that the outcome in Afghanistan was a foregone conclusion, given that it did not have the you know, it, it was essentially a failed state. It did not have all those controls that you would need to have a successful army. I, I think it's a tricky question. Where I come down right now is it's, an, it's not possible to build strong national armies in, in places like Afghanistan. And that's because militaries are state institutions. And so if there's a country that doesn't have strong state institutions, building a military is essentially building a state. And that's a very difficult thing for the US government as a whole to do. And it's a very difficult thing for the US military to do on its own. Uh, that said, that doesn't mean that, that there isn't any role for security force assistance in places like Afghanistan. Uh, the US military does have a better record building special units, elite forces on a much smaller scale. Uh, but that's that's a different, that's a much different proposition and a much less ambitious project than building an entire national military. And I'd also add, if the US is going to engage in any kind of security force assistance, it's a foregone conclusion that it will fail if the U.S. military relies exclusively on personal diplomacy, on building rapport with the partner leader as its primary strategy of influence. Incentives are, are a very important part of this project. Well, Rachel, thanks so much. Very interesting um, article. Thanks for being on the program. You can find a link to Rachel's article at govmatters.tv resources. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, too. And don't forget, you can find every episode of our program on YouTube. Hit subscribe to see all the videos we post. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Katherine Roloff and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.